Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by a science communicator with over 20 years experience. I wanted to do this episode because business is about results. Results require truth. Science is our best model for not fooling ourselves, but there is a lot of confusion about what science is, even what knowledge is. So today we are joined by Brett Hall. Brett has a Bachelor of Science in Physics and Philosophy of Science, a Master's of Science in Astronomy and Astrophysics, Bachelor of Teaching, a Graduate Certificate in Mathematics. Plus, for over seven years, he's been on the review committee for something called the Theory of Knowledge Curriculum. He has his own podcast, helping people understand good explanations from bad. And when he talks, billionaires like Naval Ravikant listen. In fact, he also co-hosts a podcast with Naval, but today is about Brett. So Brett, thank you so much for joining us today, my friend. How are you? Very happy to be here, Daryl. Good to be speaking to you from basically the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so before we get into all this, I want to ask, how did you get started? Like, what were you doing before you came into science and epistemology? Is that your background? Were your parents in the field too, or? No, I was an unusual, I shouldn't say I was an unusual child. I think I was a standard little boy who loved dinosaurs. And because I liked dinosaurs, I wanted to find out what happened to them and that somehow led me into an into astronomy and I had a very supportive parents who wanted to foster my interest in science and so I was the science nerd at school I knew exactly what I wanted to do at school all I wanted to do was to study more about this astronomy stuff I kept on thinking about bigger and bigger structures in the universe and so I was singularly focused on getting into university not to gain a qualification but to gain understanding and learnings and knowledge about astronomy. I wanted to find out about everything from the planets in our solar system to planets going around other stars to stars in other galaxies to galaxies in the distant part of the universe and how the universe was going to evolve. Early on in high school, I didn't realise exactly how much physics would be involved, but I read popular science books and gradually broadened my outlook on what this astronomy stuff was into astrophysics, cosmology, and then quantum theory. And that led me to particular thinkers, which has become my focus over recent years. I've never lost my love for astronomy. It's still the science through which I think we can gain a good understanding of how knowledge works. It is the preeminent field where there is just a Far more, it's far more obvious that there's so much more that is unknown than known. But the way in which we get from the known to the unknown can be seen relatively clearly in the field of astronomy. So now I kind of use it as an exemplar of the way in which knowledge is constructed because the rules don't change. The rules don't change about how knowledge is constructed in places like astronomy or any other science. Mm. The way in which we divide up our knowledge is a result of different kinds of methodology. We're not using precisely the same tools in mathematics and science or in morality and politics and journalism, but there are commonalities. And so that has become my focus now. What are the deepest epistemological rules that govern the way in which human beings come to construct knowledge? Mm. Can you give it a good example of how false, like an example of false knowledge or, you know, how people have fooled themselves. The curious thing about my approach to knowledge, which is David Deutsch's approach to knowledge, which is Karl Popper's approach to knowledge, is that we begin with the stance that almost everything that we come to learn about the world is false in some way. It contains misconception or it contains error. Feynman, of course, had that wonderful heuristic that science is the greatest way to stop you from fooling yourself mm -hmm. and you are the easiest person to fool. So we are in this constant process of trying to avoid fooling ourselves, or in other words, trying to avoid the errors. We can't avoid the errors, however. So the best we can do is to try and correct the errors as time goes on. Now, what are some preeminent examples of false knowledge? Well, with the caveat that 
absolutely everything that we know right. contains a misconception in some way. We've labored under deep misconceptions for a long time. The one that I like to focus on is New Newtonian physics, not because it was false, but because of what people thought about it at the time. For centuries, Newtonian physics held sway. It was Newton's law of gravity, the inverse square law, that was thought to govern, this force law was thought to govern all objects in the universe. Anything with mass had to obey Newton's inverse square law of gravity. Newton said this thing is a force. This is a literal pull between objects. So the earth pulls on the moon and the moon pulls on the earth. This theory, this idea, which enabled us to make exquisitely precise predictions, ultimately turned out to be false. Okay, so that's one thing. But the interesting thing was that so many physicists, scientists, philosophers, other thinkers thought prior to Newton being shown false that Newton was exceedingly lucky in a sense. Not only was a genius, he was exceedingly lucky. Lucky because he discovered the laws of physics and that could only be done once. And once the genius had discovered the laws of physics in the case of Newton, well, then we'd wrapped up everything in a little bow and not only had he discovered the laws of physics, but they were certainly true. There was no way these things could be false. They were perfect, pristine mathematical objects that allowed us to come to know about the rest of reality and come to be able to predict what was going to happen in reality. And I think that is my nomination for the greatest kind of false knowledge that is out there and that persisted for centuries. And although many physicists will agree now that Newton has been shown categorically false, by the revolution that was Einstein's general relativity, by experiments such as Eddington's experiment, which showed that Newton could not account for the way in which gravity actually worked. Nonetheless, many scientists and physicists still hold to the old epistemology that you can still get perfectly true knowledge, that although, okay, Newton's not perfectly correct, well, we can still find the perfectly correct theory. Maybe it's not Einstein, but maybe what comes after Einstein will be the final theory, and then we could wrap things up in a bow. People are still talking in these terms. People are still aiming for this kind of thing. And the Papirian view is you can't get there. All you can do is to improve, make progress over time, correct your errors, but that is an unending progress. As David Deutsch would say, we are always at the beginning of infinity, just barely scratching the surface of trying to understand reality. I, I love that. It reminded me of when I was 17, I did this nine month kind of leadership program. I got to travel Canada for nine months doing volunteer work full time, three months in a province and move on. And, and to, for two weeks, you'd live with the local family and every evening and weekend, you'd volunteer at whatever was going on in the community. And there was 10 of us and we were instantly volunteers. And I had a bit of a troubled background. You could say I was a bit of a troubled teen. And I almost got kicked out in the first three months of the program. You get three strikes and then you're out. And I got my second strike. And I remember at the end of the first three months, we were moving on to our next location. And I felt like I've learned so much these last three months. If I get kicked out tomorrow, I've learned everything I can learn from, I'm 17, right? I'm like, I've learned everything I can learn from this program. And then we go to this new city in a new province and, you know, a new community. And then after those three months, we're moving on to the next one. I was like, you know what? I was so foolish. I thought I learned everything in those first three months, but now, now I've learned everything. And if I go home tomorrow, I'll have gotten everything I could from this program. And we go to the third location. And again, I'm just a 70 year old kid. And then finally the end of the program finishes. And I'm like, you know what? Wow. I made it through the whole program. I've now learned everything this program had to teach me. I've now reached the end of it. Fast forward four years, I'm sitting in Japan in a izakaya with one of the girls that was in the program with us. My girlfriend's with me at the time and we're like having food and we're talking about how that had changed our lives and how that experience had shaped things. And I remember laughing because my my friend, her name was Natalie, said, you know, I feel like now I've learned everything I could learn from. It was, she had said it, but it was like, this is five years <laughs> after the program. She's like, now I've learned everything. It took till five years mm -hmm. after we finished, but now I've learned everything. And it just made me laugh because, you know, we're at the beginning of infinity. Mm. So I love that. So, you know, the not so savvy, can you talk, who's Karl Popper? Karl Popper is a philosopher from the 20th century. He died in the early nineties mm. and he revolutionized philosophy in a sense, because 
his major focus was on how does science work, what is science, what is knowledge in particular, and how does it grow. He also touched on, and sometimes in some circles he's more famous for his political philosophy. He provides us with a philosophical worldview. His ideas, whether they're in politics or history or science or epistemology, they cohere together. So Mm. they all make sense of the world. Mm. What he did was provide us with some relief from that idea, that misconception that I mentioned earlier, this idea that we can get to a final, complete, once and for all, certain truth about the world. He thought correctly that the, I think the quote goes, the doctrine that the truth is manifest is the source of all tyranny. Mm. In other words, this idea that you can have the certain truth, that's going to lead to dogmatism and that potentially is the source of coercion and the use of force against your fellow people. Mm -hmm. Political movements over time, the leaders of these political movements think they have the final truth. And once they think they have the final truth, where in fact, whether it's political or religious, they tend to defend these doctrines, these dogmas with violence, which puts an end to progress. It says that I already have everything that needs to be known, at least in this particular area. No further work needs to be done. No criticism needs to be brought to bear. And so you can't possibly have improvement once you have that stance. And so Popper provides a defence against people who want to say that the utopia is possible, you know, the final best situation can be obtained, or that we in fact already have in some sense the final best state of affairs, whether it be in knowledge or whether it be in a particular way of organising society. So I've recently been on my own podcast working through one of Popper's earlier works where he goes through the mistakes that previous philosophers had made in trying to come to a better understanding of the world. Some of them made great strides and great progress. They just never got quite the whole way to what we call conjectural knowledge, the idea that Knowledge is able to solve a problem, but always contains misconceptions. We moved from, you know, sort of in the dark ages, we'd forgotten about, when I say we, I mean human civilization to a large extent, had forgotten about the lessons from the ancient Greeks. And so what we had then was religious authorities saying, we possess the truth. Here's the holy book. The holy book contains all of the truth that ever needs to be known. And so then a new escape had to be made. And so we had people like the French rationalists who were saying things like, well, you can, and the individual can use their reason. You don't need to defer to the king and the priest all the time. You don't need to defer to this authority. You can use your own reason. And so that's a good thing. The British empiricists were saying, you, the individual, can use your senses to look out into the world and to come to an understanding. This is better than just deferring everything to the priest or the king or the prophet and so on right. and so forth. Right. But they made mistakes. They thought that you could get certain truth by using your reason. You could get to certain truth by using your senses to gather up data. And right. Popper said, although there is virtue in these ideas of using your senses, using your reason, the individual can come to a judgment on their own. You won't get to certain truth. You'll right. get to knowledge genuine knowledge, but knowledge is not the same thing as certain truth. Knowledge is a thing that is able to solve problems. And once it solves a problem, other people recognize it it solves a problem. And David Deutsch made the advance that it's the thing that tends to get itself copied and replicated in the environment. It is the piece of information that once we say, here's the technical, but I think poetic way of putting it, once instantiated in a physical substrate, tends to cause itself to remain so which is a fancy way of saying it's resilient. It tends to get itself copied over time because it's solving problems. And that's what genuine knowledge is, Mm. Uh, a bit of information that can solve your problem for you. It it doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be certainly true. And it withstands the test of time. I I, I love this because, again, you know, I'm trying to always make sure that I keep all of our listeners. I mean, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted to talk about. It almost speaks like just again to kind of feed it into kind of more common known terms is, is there's these business circles is kind of this fixed versus growth mindset. And what's kind of what you're saying is the fixed mindset is we've accomplished all there is to accomplish. And the growth mindset acknowledges that there's more room forever. And I love that you've talked about replication mm-hmm. in an environment. I mean, that's almost like the business that continues to exist year in year after year that continues to innovate, continues to lead versus something, you know, like fax machines. You wouldn't want to be selling fax machines in an era of digital file transfers and email. 
And so there's constant progress and that we're always looking for a better answer and a better explanation. And one thing you mentioned mm -hmm. was that our senses and simple observations can fool us. And so again, to tie this into business, Ford, he had said, if I had asked what people wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And Galileo proved that we weren't the center of the universe. Originally, through observation, we thought that we were the center of the universe, that everything, because based on our perspective, that's what it looks like. Everything spins around us. And there is, I forget his name, but there was an astronomer that had a theory, but he had no way to test it. And then Galileo figured out how to test it with his telescope. And by seeing the different mm. phases of Venus, like we have the phase of the moon, a full moon, a half moon, crescent moon, he was able to demonstrate and explain very specifically that we can't be the center of the universe because then why does this object have these shadows? And then the only proper explanation was, therefore, the sun must be the center of the universe, you know, based on the geometry <laughs> mathematics of it. So I think that's a great example. I also want to bring up for people to help them understand the scientific process, so to speak. I, Popper, I remember reading one of his lectures, he said, there is no scientific method. There is no guaranteed way of producing a scientific breakthrough. If there was, we would have way more, more often. But what we do have is a way to try to prevent ourselves from making mistakes. And I think he called it T1 plus TT plus EE equals P2. So you have problem one and you come up with a tentative theory or tentative solution, temporary solution, and then you eliminate the errors which require criticisms and debates and experimentation and measurement. And at the end, you either arrive at problem two or you're still at problem one, but you've developed new understanding of it. Is that accurate? Please, because you're the expert on the subject here. I'm just a hobbyist. Yeah, so everyone who goes through high school and takes, you know, high school science learns about this thing called the scientific method. It introduces this misconception that if you just follow the scientific method, then at the end of the process, you're going to get knowledge, you're going to get the scientific theory, you're going to come to a deeper understanding of the world. But Popper's point in criticising this notion of a fixed scientific theory was to say that what we're doing is we begin with theories. We're all walking around with knowledge all the time. We have an understanding of the world. Sometimes it's inexplicit. We can't exactly put it into words. Sometimes we can, but whatever the case, we begin with theories. We've all got theories all the time. Science begins when you encounter the problem with one of your theories, when you go, ah, that doesn't seem right. What's going on here? And so mm -hmm. the curiosity kicks in. And the job of the scientist at that time, the theoretician, certainly is to conjecture an idea, guess what is going on, think of the theory, and that's the very hard part. Mm. The next equally hard part is to then figure out a way, how do we test this theory? You're already walking around with your existing knowledge. You encounter this problem. You come up with a theory that purports to account for the problem, but also is able to explain why your existing theory seemed to be correct. So, the purpose of the experiment in that situation is then to determine whether your new guess or your pre-existing theory is the correct one. It mm -hmm. will decide between those two situations. Mm -hmm. This has happened many times throughout the history of science. That's the almost the entire purpose of what's called the crucial experiment in science is to decide between the new ideas that the scientist has come up with and the old ideas that we already live with. Right. Now, very often the experiment essentially, we, doesn't, we shouldn't say it fails, but it's going to refute the new idea. And if it refutes the new idea, well, you're back to square one. Right. You've made progress in a sense, but you've just ruled out the new idea, which never enabled you to make any progress and never enabled you to solve your problem. So you're back to still having a problem in the existing theory. The best case scenario is you refute the old knowledge. You refute right. your old theory, and then you've got the new theory. And for some time, you're now in an unproblematic state of a kind with respect to that theory. But the day will come, <laughs> the day will come when you'll observe something out there in the environment where it doesn't fit with even that new theory. And then you're going to have to come up with yet something new. And so right. the cycle continues and goes on. Yeah. But this is why that picture of the scientific method that we learn at school, you know, gather the data firstly, let's gather the data. Well, the problem with that is, how do you know what data to gather? Right. What kind of measuring device are you using? How does the measuring device work? Yeah. This is why Popper says that observations are theory-laden. You have to have a theory about how all this stuff works, yeah. how to collect the data and how your measuring devices work. So it, we always begin with knowledge of a kind. And 
what we're out what we're out for in trying to make progress is to find problems with our existing knowledge and right. in finding the problems with existing people think people hear the word problem they think oh no it's bad it's a problem no, the problem is an opportunity for correcting an error and therefore moving beyond where you already are mm, yeah the life isn't happening to you it's happening for you so a couple of things to talk mm. about like you said the problem with just you know collecting data there's a book like how to lie with statistics and i think it's called aliasing aliasing in your data if you look at an orchard Perhaps the orchard was put in a square with rows, but if you stand at a certain position, you can say, no, no, this is a diamond shape. And so there's all sorts of ways where we have to make sure we're not putting bias on our data and as well as that we're working from the same definition. And that's where it gets into the specific details. A lot of people think that science is about you know, very reductionist, but it's not so much as it is just about trying to be specific and clear. Because if I say the word education, someone may think a lecture hall, somebody else may think a hands-on practice, someone else may think, you know, sitting in a classroom. So that lack of a clear definition really can cause a lot of ambiguity. And so it makes it difficult for others to kind of stand on the shoulders of that research, so to speak. And so it sounds like, you know, it comes back to this concept of eliminating errors is incredibly important and accepting that the fallibility mm. Of everything business is the ultimate acid test of whether your ideas are real or not i mean maybe it's not the ultimate but for the general population i think it's one of the most easily accessible acid tests for their ideas i've got this idea let me see if it works you know and they put it out there and do they make any money or not so um mm -hmm. yeah i love this so now let's talk about we talked a bit about what knowledge is do you feel we've talked enough about how knowledge is constructed have we built a good base of that we can never talk enough about it because there's open questions. In particular, when we talk about this idea that I mentioned that Popper had, that we construct conjectures about the world, we construct guesses about the world, which sometimes makes people who come from an academic perspective where they think that knowledge might be derived and they have fancy ways and mathematical models of how the knowledge might be derived. One such modern incantation of this that is very fashionable at the moment is known as Bayesian inference generation. And it, it actually works in a sense, I say works, it is one of the methodologies that is used in AI. But the issue there with AI is that we're not constructing knowledge. What we're doing is building a map of the pre-existing body of work that people have already conjectured into existence. Mm. It's not going to construct anything new. You're not going to turn to AI as it presently exists in order to unify something like general relativity and quantum theory to figure out exactly what new theory is going to go beyond what our present models of physics are or to figure out what the successor to Darwinian evolution by natural selection using genes happens to be. You're not going to make these great strides in science. You need a creative thinking scientist in order to mm -hmm. do that. Now, what makes the difference between this artificially intelligent system and intelligence should be put in scare quotes there and the genuinely creatively intelligent scientists well it's this capacity to make to generate creative conjectures about the world so when we say have we talked enough about knowledge i want to know from people because i don't have an answer popper doesn't have an answer no one has an answer yet how people generate guesses Right. What's going on there? Once we have the answer to that, David Deutsch has a wonderful rule of thumb for this. You can program it. Yeah, Here's a way of figuring out whether or not you understand something. If you can't program it, then you don't understand it. And we don't know how to program artificial general intelligence. If we did, we could turn our computers into effectively people. They would be people. They would just have a different form of body to what we have. Right. So this, this is one of the great mysteries that lurks at the center of epistemology. It's an epistemological problem and it needs to be solved there first before we can start programming our computers to do this thing. Now, the other half of this picture of knowledge, this idea about conjecturing theories into existence, conjecturing explanations, generating guesses is the idea of refutation, how we discard a guess once we've come up with it. And this is sometimes called in educational fields, critical thinking, thinking of ways in which a particular idea is flawed. And in the business world, what could go wrong? What is a problem 
with existing inventions, ideas, creations, right. business models, whatever it happens to be. And the critic has an important role to play. A critic is also a creative person. You have to think up the criticisms. What's wrong with this idea and try and shoot it down. And if the idea survives, if it's any good at all, if it's a good bit of kit that the business has come up with, then we know that it's robust and it's going to work because it has survived the criticisms. Mm -hmm. And the criticism of the market is, of course, the most important criticism that a business can undergo. And so this is true. This vision of the way in which knowledge is constructed, making guesses and then subjecting them to rigorous criticism, it is parallel in science, morality, business, technology, history, Politics, you know, Popper's view of politics was precisely this, that what we do when we elect rulers is we conjecture that this person might be the best out of all the candidates, but the whole purpose of democracy is the votes, the purpose of the vote is a critical purpose. It's to get rid of the person once you recognise that there's a deficiency in them or their policies in some way. Yeah, exactly. Eliminating eliminating errors. That It's not about perfection. It's about quick iterations. Quickly identifying and eliminating an error where things are going dangerously wrong. I love I love that. And making a, a little bit of incremental progress rather than aiming for the revolutionary change, making fast iterations, as you just said, so that you can move forward very quickly. It's a better way for humans to get from A to B is the sprinter the fast, quick steps rather than the long jumper. The long jumper will get somewhere, but they end up, you know, crashing into the sand and they're not going to go much further after that. They have to get up and right. take their big run up again. So we human beings are natural sprinters. Right. <laughs> no, I, I love jump. that. That's exactly it. Because, you know, I've heard this said that markets are somewhat unknown and unknowable. We have data that can allude to how big a market is, but there's always churn. How many people are now coming into the market to buy a house versus not? How many, Right. So essentially markets are unknown and unknowable, but everybody can recognize excellence at solving a problem. And it's my belief that problems are markets, not demographics or psychographics. There's a problem that exists. I'm hungry, restaurant, my teeth hurt, dentist. So problems exist. Certain stereotypes of people experience this problem. And that's kind of where your target marketing comes in to help them with that. But that excellence is what we're pursuing. And so to be excellent, you have to constantly, and that's what you hope every generation of new products and services brings, right? The new iPhone is supposed to be better than the last type thing. Can we speak a little bit to, though, the dangers of, of dynamic versus static progress? I know I know that David talks about societies, but just the, the basic concept, dynamic versus static. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it, for the overwhelming majority of human history, our situation has been one of stasis, of not making much improvement to our lives and to civilizations. And when I say for the overwhelming majority of civilization, just think our pre-modern ancestors living in tribes, perhaps on the African savannah, they wanted to have more food. They wanted to have farming, but they didn't. They wanted to have better medicine, but they didn't. They had short lives. They had violent lives. Nothing was improving. Now, why wasn't anything improving? And David solved this problem. It was a a wonderfully insightful discovery published in the beginning of infinity where he said, well, look, human beings now biologically were basically the same creature that we were thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of years ago. We had this same creative capacity genetically. Our brain runs the mind that can generate guesses about the world So why wasn't it? Mm. Why did it take until the enlightenment of the 16th, 17th century? It took all that time before people suddenly started to think of new ideas that could make progress. Why were we then beginning to criticise things? Well, it's because this capacity to criticise, that other half of this idea of conjecture, was for the overwhelming majority of human history being directed towards criticizing people who criticized. Mm. It was being directed in, it was misfiring in a sense. It was the chief or the priest or whoever was in charge of the tribal community saying, we have the perfect utopia. Anyone who says that my position as chief is 
untenable, that, that, you know, the holy man doesn't have direct access to the gods, that the way we do things isn't the best way of doing things. Well, you need to be put to death. You're an mm-hmm. outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a person who needs to be punished. And so mm-hmm. in societies like that, the best way to get ahead, the best way to demonstrate your fealty to the chief, to say, to show that you belong, is to more faithfully enact the culture that you're in. Not right. to challenge it, but to use your creativity to be a better exemplar, a better citizen of that particular society. Not to be a rebel, yep. because to be a rebel would to be an outsider and would to be punished. And so this is what stasis looks like. This is the way in which human creativity can be used to keep a situation in place that is bad for everyone involved. And the name for this kind of idea that people have is known as the anti-rational meme. It Mm. may be explicit. It may not be explicit. In other words, you might be able to express it in words or you might not be able to express it in words. But an anti-rational meme is something like criticizing the king or the chief is what will cause you to be put to death. Now, you may know that explicitly or you may not know that explicitly just because the way everyone behaves around you is such that no one ever criticizes the people in authority and so this anti-rational meme means no one will ever criticize the king the king can never possibly improve the way in which society is set up can never possibly improve or because people are using their creativity to try and keep things the same we differ we differ in that we've differed in that increasingly since, as I say, the 1600s, 1700s, something like that, just prior to the Industrial Revolution, where people began to criticise leaders, systems of morality, systems of politics, and recognise that, in fact, if you start to criticise stuff, things can get better. And so now we have what is called a tradition of criticism, where we want things to get better and we recognise that critique in a kind way a gentle way in a way that is directed towards trying to improve things will actually end up improving things yeah and so this is why we call it a dynamic society things are now improving rapidly and the key thing is we need stability in some way because there have been occasions throughout human history where there have been brief moments where a culture of criticism has flourished but they've gone extinct Okay, ancient Greece was like this. Certain revolutionary movements have been like this as well. What we have in this tradition of the United States, Britain, Europe, Australia, Canada, increasingly parts of Asia, is we have simultaneously the rapid improvement, the culture Mm -hmm. of of criticism with stability, with political and moral stability. So although things are rapidly changing, they're not simultaneously falling apart. Right. And... We don't know all the reasons why, which is why I'm not a revolutionary, which is why I say things like where systems, political and parliamentary systems are working, working in a sense that they, they never have before and in all other places have led to stasis. We should be very careful about trying to radically transform or change our political systems. We might not like the political leader at any given point in time, but if we recognise that the That's point is right in our political systems, yeah, is to remove the people we don't like rapidly, <laughs> then we can try something new without the whole system falling apart and needing to be upended. So that's what a, a dynamic society is. It is stable while undergoing rapid change. I love that. And, you know, that's kind of, again, bringing it back to business, that's where a monopoly is bad because when someone has a monopoly, there's no incentive for them to iterate. And that's where competition causes it to be better for everybody, for the people. And it's the same thing in politics. If you have an authoritarian government, there's no error correction going on. So it ceases to benefit everybody equally, and it starts to get very skewed to, to certain small small groups. And so, you know, like you said, the, the static is really about conformity. I almost feel like the battle between capitalism and socialism is kind of freedom versus equality. Because, you know, you need to be free to come up with new ideas, to test new things, you need to be free to be rewarded for greater productivity, but then it's not equal because the higher producers mm. get rewarded more. And I almost, like you talked about this, we don't know, and this is just theory and putting it there, but I feel like this is part of our species progress is this kind of awkward, like, like what is this, like lurching forward, kind of like a yin and yang mm. between freedom and equality because we don't, there's people being left behind. And so we need to make things equal for them to catch up. 
but at the same time, too much equality, too much conformity, we're too static. And this is another thing that comes up is, you know, if people might be say, you know, oh, I want to go back to how it used to be, you know, like as a comedian, he's got this great thing. Like if, if we were, uh, I forget how he gets into it, but he's just like, you know, if God came back, how and saw we did, wouldn't he be bad? Like apparently like, what, what did you do to this place? What did you do? Like, oh, I, I, you know, like why there's oil everywhere. Who did this? Did you put oil here? Hey, why are the polar bears brown? Did you shit on the polar bears? And like, you know, all this sort of stuff. And he's like, well, you didn't have to do anything. There was just food everywhere. You just have to pick it up and eat it. Like what's going on? This whole story about the, like the biosphere and that things were so great. And, but I, I think that again, going back to this dynamic versus static, there were problems. There were things like plagues. There were environmental disasters. And without creating new knowledge, we're just basically biding our time until the next one comes along. Elon talks, talks about this, that not a matter of if an extinction level event will happen on this planet. It's really just a matter of when, and if we fail to create the knowledge to lead this planet, to you know, have a backup of our species that we're really just kind of singing and dancing while the music is playing. And at some point it's going to end. And, you know, for, for the sake of the light of consciousness, we really need to pursue, you know, excellence in the, in the creation of new knowledge. It's kind of my little not, not only worth not only were things bad in the past, but that kind of undersells it. Things were always bad all the time for everyone, and they only ever seem to get worse from the perspective of any individual. I mm. laugh at those comedians as well. I, I think it's hilarious. You yeah, know, Ricky Gervais. It's, it's like to be a funny comedian, you somehow have to be a pessimist. And I can laugh along with them. I laugh along with Louis C.K., who says similar things, yeah, and, yeah. and Ricky Gervais, who says similar things about how – and they have this – just as intellectuals do in general, they have this warped vision of what the past was like. Right. The past was filled with disease. The past was right. filled with famine. Yep. I'm not that old, but I can remember the 80s when there were famines and the entire developed world was fixated upon the developing world or parts of the developing world which were yep. suffering through drought and famine as yep. they do not happen today. This yep. doesn't, and to the extent that they do, they are remedied relatively quickly. We yep. have a situation that the ancients could only dream of. This would seem like the utopia to them, problem-filled as it is. Yep. But the past was a hellscape. Yep. And we have managed to solve, to some extent, many of those problems. We, we live in... A, no, when would you, as many people have observed before, when would you want to be born? Pick a time yeah. between now and any time in the past. You can pick yeah. another time in the past. Now, Many people might say, you know, certain people would say, oh, well, I'd love to go back to the 70s. I enjoyed the 70s. Well, because I was young in the 70s or I was young in the 80s or something like that. Okay, but really, would you? The medical technology back in that age, <laughs> you know, right. you've got the, the regular communication technology back in that age, access to knowledge of back in that age. So you might be you younger. You have five kids, but so you're, you're one like... or two make it to old age, you know. You really want to yes. watch three of your five kids die from whatever, from diarrhea. Like that, you know, mm -hmm. if you had diarrhea, that was it. Like that used to kill you. Like, that's it. You're done. You got diarrhea. Like you're mm -hmm. done. You know, mm -hmm. I, I agree hundred percent. So can we talk a little bit about what like capitalism and economic growth? Cause there's confusion here. There's a lot of talk about, we need to preserve the biosphere, you know, and, and I know you recently released an episode about degrowth. I think these are fascinating topics. Can we, can you speak to this a little bit? Like why, why is capitalism well, I, matter? Why, why is economic growth important? Why not just do away with it? Fundamentally, the argument for free market capitalism is a moral argument. Putting aside the fact that it works from an economic perspective, people are enriched by it. Morally, the argument is that it is the system. It is just the system that says coercion is wrong. Using force against your fellow human beings is wrong. We need to extract that out. And the way in which many people describe it is, the only people who are allowed to use force in a capitalist society are the people who protect others from force. Okay, so some people go the anarcho-capitalist route where they say, well, you have your own private security firm and then they are the ones that are able to protect you from everyone else. I don't quite go that far. 
I'd say the government, the purpose of the government is to extract out the force. They are the people who, if something goes wrong in business and you have a, a, a clash with your competitor who is trying to physically use force against you, physically burn down your factory, right. then you have someone to call to stop that from happening. It's right. not pure chaos or, or anarchy or something like right. that. So that's all that capitalism is. Capitalism just says that we should not be using force in the market that if I produce a widget and you want to buy my widget because you think it's going to enrich your life in some way, then you pay me some money, I give you the widget and no one else needs to be involved. Mm. Now, of course, this is not the ideal that we're in. The, the, the situation we're in right now is I manufacture the widget, you like my widget, I sell you the widget, you pay me some money and there's another person over here who takes a little bit off the side. Right. Okay, crony, crony capitalism. The government. So, right. well, well, yeah, yes. Yeah, that, that can cousin be Eddie's that, rubber stamp. I'm, I'm just talking. You got to pay Cousin Eddie his 50 bucks because he's useless. And so <laughs> yeah. you got to give him and, 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 and cousin. Stamp. And in this view, Cousin, cousin Eddie is the local councillor perhaps your state representative, perhaps your federal representative as well. There can be all these layers of bureaucracy that want a cut of every single transaction that's going on all the time. Now, again, I say, I think there is an important role for government. I just don't think the government should be have the tentacles into every single area of human life. So, for example, if you're not a person who is producing widgets, if you're not a person who is willing to even try to produce a widget or try to do anything, but rather you want to sit down and look up at the sky and sunbake, that some people think that, well, the government still has a role there in trying to keep, you know, you healthy and happy, that perhaps the government has a role in providing certain services. And because the more services that you add to the list of things that the government needs to do, yep, the more then the more they often or the more the more money that, you know, when you and I have a transaction, I'm selling you the widget and you're paying me for it, the more money needs to be taken out by this third party to pay for this other stuff. And my argument is always, if the government's so good at providing transportation, if the government is so good at providing healthcare, if the government's so good at, uh, at providing certain kinds of technology, roads, communications, infrastructure, why not allow them to deal with food? What, why, why isn't government providing food deliveries to people's door all the time if they're so competent at producing stuff? And of course, people laugh at this and they go, oh, it's ridiculous. Of course not. Mao, he in the West, people. he starved millions. That was Mao. Well, exactly. Centralized in the, agriculture in, and starved tens of millions of people. They don't, they're not even sure how many he killed. Right, centralized exactly. and, it, it's, yeah. and it still exists in, in, in places like North Korea. Okay? There's very few places left that are holding out on this, but there are places still where you are rationed your food, you, the government does provide everything. They provide, they provide you with a job, supposedly guaranteed. They provide you with a wage, supposedly guaranteed, a certain ration of food. And this is the ideal society. This is the Marxist communist utopia where you don't have a choice because the government's deciding everything. So it's the ultimate force being applied Everything's coercion all the time, everywhere. That's right. Now, we are in, although things continue to improve, there, there are sometimes two steps forward, one steps back, and I endorse this view of humanity wholeheartedly, and I think we are improving overall. But I'm also going to speak up when I think yep. there has been a step back, and I think recently there has been a number Huge of step steps back. backwards <laughs> when, it, when it comes to the role of government in society. And the one oh, yeah. that I've been animated about recently is that people do not get to choose which source of energy they use. Now, mm. I want to go and do my cooking of my dinner later on. I want to choose if I want to use natural gas. I want to choose if I want to use electricity and the electricity comes from a coal-fired power station. But the, the prevailing view at the moment is you don't get the choice. It's not up to the individual. It's up to a popular vote uh, and the government will enact the will of the people when it comes to something like the source of electricity. And the fashionable source of electricity right now is solar energy and wind mm. energy and perhaps batteries. Mm. And so we all don't have a choice. They will decide on that. But I don't see any qualitative difference between that and food. And people say, well, mm. because climate change. And so climate change is this existential threat where we all have to be. Well, obesity is an existential threat. Yeah. Certain kinds of diabetes are an existential threat, perhaps. So perhaps we should have the government involved in food. And you will get the Marxists and communists to say, yes, exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> but no, this, I this is an infallibleist notion. And so it, it, it's, it's entirely antagonistic to my view of knowledge, which is 
Error is everywhere. We're all yep. fallible. And the government is not special in this and the people running mm. the government are not special in this. And it just might be the case that solar panels and wind power might not be the panacea that people think it is. In fact, I think we already know that. We already know that it's not the panacea. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it just in either case, it shouldn't. I, I just I'm with you on that where I believe in a small government simply a great real-time example is in Canada, they had the Arrive Can app, which was launched during the COVID pandemic. And our government spent $52 million to develop this app. And earlier this year, a programmer created a version of it, identical, from scratch, over a three-day weekend in his room <laughs> in Toronto. Yes, <laughs> $52 yes, yes. million to do something sometimes- a skilled programmer did in a weekend. That's just. I, hope, I, I know nothing about the story, but I can just imagine. I can just imagine that the Canadian government actually did employ skilled programmers, but the skilled programmers were so skilled they were, they thought to themselves, "We can get fifty-two million dollars out of this. We don't right, have to yeah, just say we can do it over a weekend." If you've got the government purse behind you, <laughs> well, and that's and that's the thing people don't realize: there's no such thing as government money. It's all your money, but. There's like a detachment of ownership when you hand it over to someone else and it's put in aggregate where now it's, you know, I just, yeah. And that's where, again, I just don't think it takes billions of dollars to, to pay for teachers, to pave the roads. I'm just, it's, I think, I think in a lot of ways we've got this, you know, error compiling on top. It's like the, the old VHS and, and cassette tapes. You make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And, you know, some of these, these systems, um, have just have so many built-in flaws that we're we need to really get clear and eliminate the errors and and some of that is requiring you know updating or doing more with less. Can we talk a bit about economic growth growth versus degrowth? Mm. Well, this this was an astonishing article that I saw published in Nature recently. I had hitherto, I don't think I'd heard of the term degrowth. This notion that the world's evils are at least in part caused by humanity becoming larger in some way, whether it be the population, whether it be the effects on the planet in particular, things like the emissions that we're producing becoming greater because this is a necessary consequence of us doing stuff, of us doing anything. The laws Mm. of physics simply say heat will be produced, entropy will be caused, and so this is going to change the environment in some way. The the authors of this Nature article, respected experts in their field, there were eight of them, had written this article about how we should be pursuing degrowth, that hitherto governments have been fixated upon growth as a metric of things getting better. And so economically, what you want as a government and what you want, I suppose, as a society is to see the growth numbers going up, your growth gross domestic product every year or every quarter goes up. And in fact, one of the metrics we have for if a society is in decline in some way, when people are going to start losing their jobs, is known as the recession, when you have two or more quarters of successive economic decline. Now, the authors of this paper were saying, well, we're not prescribing a recession. A recession, after all, is accidental, not intended but we would intend to have degrowth. We would intend to have the economy become smaller over time. So we're not going to call it a deliberate recession. We're going to call it degrowth. So doesn't it sound wonderful that we'll have less impact? (laughs) One of the prescriptions, perhaps the, the part where I laughed the most when I was going through this particular article was that the authors themselves recognize at one point that people aren't going to like this in in any given society. So, for example, in in, in Canada, in Canada, you might recognise that degrowth isn't great for your society and you might want to leave your country and go somewhere else where degrowth is not a policy. So their prescription, well, we need to ensure that there are changes made at a global level internationally with treaties and so on to prevent people from leaving their country, to prevent them in particular from taking their capital elsewhere. So new legislation, international agreements would have to be made to prevent the movement of capital between nations and indeed the movement of people between nations. They knew, they saw that if you actually had this situation where a particular nation was degrowing, getting smaller, people would flee and go elsewhere. So uh, I find it, it, it's funny, 
because it is so ludicrous, but it is also scary. frightening. Yeah, that, 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 that this is what the universities are feeding to students. This is what journals like Nature are publishing. This is what young people are going to be taught. And if they're going to be taught at universities mm-hmm. by these academics who are publishing these peer-reviewed papers, it's eventually going to feed into schools. And of course, the greatest concern, well, that's probably the greatest concern, but alongside of that is Governments today are fixated upon scientism. Scientism is this idea that science is the solution to absolutely every problem you, could ever, you, could, yep. you ever have. Yeah, that it is an authority in some way. So there is this awful cabal going on. I wouldn't necessarily call it conspiracy. Uh, no one has to actually say anything. They don't have to get together into cigar. It doesn't have to be, yeah, there doesn't have to be an rooms. explicit agreement. There just has to be an unofficial unification of common interests pushing an agenda yes, towards but, a certain goal, just like in anything. A bunch of people playing hockey in a country, in a city might all want to have a better arena. It doesn't mean there's necessarily a conspiracy, but they all have this common interest, hmm. ergo movements happen towards that. I agree. This is now this is getting into yes. some Club of Rome limits of growth research stuff, which is a legitimate thing. They commissioned a study, you know, I don't know how far down this rabbit hole we want to go, but all I want to say is that this is this is like a there are powerful people that believe this. And like you said, the scientism, did I say that right? Scientism, is that? Scientism, scientism. yes, yeah, scientism, the application scientism. of science to problems that are not scientific. Right. And so they have these this group of projections, which basically say we have to kill off half the population because no matter what, we're all headed for doom. And that is, you can look that up, you can Google it, Club of Rome, limits of growth. Mm. And even Bill Gates himself Mm. in January 2020, ironically, did an interview with the author and published it on his YouTube channel. The video is called Limits of Growth. And this is Mm. all fits into this. And I'm not trying to take us down any, trying to talk about things that are this degrowth concept about now, you know, climate change is such a huge thing on everyone's agenda. You can't get away from it anywhere. I believe like if I sat in a a garage with the door shut and I had all my plants and pets with me in the car and the car was running and the engine was on that I, you know, we might asphyxiate at a certain point in time. So I don't necessarily think that humans are not having an impact, but this is, this gets into some scary, scary domains because there's legitimate serious money behind this degrowth concept. And it's not like Mm -hmm. you said, yeah. Yeah. It's terribly anti-human. And, and as I say, it doesn't need to be a, an explicit conspiracy, although you've mentioned some there. No doubt, there, I think that there there will be groups out there actually having the meetings. But in the case I'm speaking of, you do have these scientists, academics, who have a particular uh, perspective on the way in which the world should be organised. Yep. They publish journals. They publish in journals, which are willing to publish their stuff, such as this yep. Nature article. And then all the politician has to do is to point to the journal article and say, look here, Here's some scientific research being done on the way in which our policies that we're proposing will actually fix the planet. Now, you, Mr. Voter and Mrs. Voter, do you really want to go against the scientific consensus? Of course you don't. This is a well-respected scientific journal. And so it's this wonderful little conga line of people coming up with the policy that is going to be enacted by people who can point to the journal where the policy was originally published. So this is is not exactly a form of corruption. it's not an explicit form of corruption, but I think it's a corruption of the scientific method or the corruption of the peer review process. Now, peer right. review has all sorts of problems to begin with. We have to begin to recognise that people are the most important things in the entire universe. Yes. It's not the rocks and it's not the atmosphere and it's not the rest of the planet. People are. And people are ultimately going to have to leave this planet. We have to accept that fact. Now, whether that happens in centuries or millennia is beside the point. This is just, as I said in a recent podcast, the first of our homes in terms of human civilization. This planet Earth is a fixer-upper. It's in need of renovation. Right. It's got terrible, it's like your first studio apartment, terrible windows. You're going to want to patch them up. We're, we're, we're allowing asteroids to come in periodically every few thousand years and just wipe out massive numbers of species. So we've got to fix that up. We've got to fix up the climate in the same way that we want to fix up the climate of our own homes. We don't want it too hot. We don't want it too cold. We want to make it friendly for humans. We should want to do the same with planet Earth. But this does not mean trying to keep the planet's climate the same the same as it was 100 years ago, which seems to be the prescription. Let's prevent the amount of heat in the atmosphere from increasing to the point where the polar ice caps melt. 
Yeah. But yep. it wouldn't matter whether or not this, this polar ice cap melting phenomena, which is a genuine phenomena, was happening via a natural process or a man-made process. We right. should want to do something about it. And there might be a situation, and again, I think that the it's very much the data is out on this yet, as to what extent global warming and the melting of frozen areas yep. could be good for humanity yep. and the rest of the planet. Yep. Could it open up farmland and rich forest areas and agricultural places in, in Greenland? Mm-hmm. Might Antarctica become fertile and a place mm-hmm. for people to move and live and for animals to thrive and if that's mm-hmm. what you care about. Mm-hmm. So uh, climate change is simply one problem. Yeah. The genuine problem is a problem of human flourishing. How can we make people wealthier, healthier, and yes. happier? And it's yes. that wealth. And those three things are absolutely connected and we want the wealthier. At the moment we are with certain policies such as the degrowth policy pursuing something precisely the opposite. Yeah. We are making people less wealthy. We're we're demonizing business people and entrepreneurs. Yep. Anyone who's a billionaire or a millionaire is thought of as in some way inherently evil. Yep. The pursuit of profit is regarded as being inherently evil. Yep. This is a misconception. It's wrong and it itself is an evil idea. Yeah. There- Wealth is the precondition for human flourishing, health and everything else. Yes. yes. 100%. There are parasitic entities. We all know that. We all know that there are businesses that sell snake oil. But you also know that your dentist actually fixes your teeth when you're in pain. We all know that there's, mm. you know, there's legitimate training programs for kids that help, you know, like a do- simple as ha- helping train your dog so it doesn't pee all over your house. We do know that there's a valid, there's valid businesses that really solve problems. And the measure of how many people they help is, is measured and quantified in dollars generated typically. And so by degrowth, you're literally ending that progress, that growth. You're ending enabling those problems to be solved. You know, the biosphere, David Deutsch talks about this in his book, the biosphere was not hospitable. We had to live in a small bandwidth of the planet because we couldn't live in the other, the Arctic. It was too cold. We had to develop technology to make it hospitable. There's this theme that you hear some of these kind of Club of Rome people talk about useless eaters. And I actually read about this in one of Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. He talked about don't become one of these useless sacks of eating flesh. And I, I worry and I wonder if some of these people think that they're hyper, I don't know if the word is hyper intelligent, but they refer to useless eaters in the sense that, you know, we've even heard this come out of certain, what's his name, Yuri, out of the World Economic Forum. They're just, we're not going to need people at some point, technologies, we're not going to need most humans. And that this concept, it's it's just so, it's so tough to predict what's going to happen in life seven steps down the road. We didn't realize how much we needed honeybees until we almost killed them all with pesticides. You know, outside of my yard, I've got grasshoppers, butterflies, all that. They're useless to me, perhaps, but they're part of a web of an ecosystem that I actually need. So we have to be really careful about, you know, about kind of not in the sense of preserving global warming, but we have to be really careful about just saying, you know, we don't actually need all this growth. We can just kill all this stuff off. I think we just have to really try to get focused on the problems we're trying to solve and solve those without necessarily kicking the legs out from under the table. There's there's a great a great story. It's called the story of the Chinese farmer. And it's like one day this Chinese farmer, his horses run away. And his neighbors at dinner that night, they go, oh, what bad luck. And the farmer goes, well, well, maybe. And the next day his horse comes back and following it are four wild horses. And his, his neighbors go, oh, what good fortune. And the farmer goes, well, maybe. And the next day his son is trying to tame one of these wild horses and gets thrown off its back and breaks his leg. And the neighbors are at that night go, oh, what bad luck. And the farmer goes, well, maybe. And the next day the military comes through conscripting all the young men into the army. But because son is that, because the son has a broken leg, they don't take them. And then the neighbors go, oh, what good luck. And the farmer goes, well, maybe. And the moral of the story is it's so hard to predict, you know, whether good fortune or bad fortune now, seven steps down the road will give us the outcome that we want. We have to really accept that we might be fallible in all of our beliefs. And I just, yeah, it's just like you mentioned, I think the main theme of this is that this talk of degrowth and, you know, and limits of growth and government control of our options and preventing us the freedom to develop new ideas and pursue excellence in different fields. It's just a very static society, scary kind of thing. And I and that's part of why I wanted to bring you here, because I, I really believe that we have to empower small business owners, the entrepreneurs, the small and medium-sized businesses, because 
you know, we have to resist the monopolies. We have to resist the static push of, you know, enforcing these blanket policies and rules, the scientistism, you know, and, and just people feeling like they have the answer. I, I just, that's, it's, it's a concern. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it highlights the necessity of optimism, this idea that things can get better with a little bit of effort. We don't know the way in which knowledge is going to grow. We cannot predict the future. You, you, you mentioned a parable involving a horse. Let me throw one back to you. I'll steal sure. this from the beginning of infinity, but I don't think it originated with David Deutsch. I think it's a it's an ancient parable, the parable of two men who are imprisoned for criticising the king. And because they'd criticised the king and it wasn't allowed in this particular static society, they were sentenced to death. And here they mm. are in the, the jail awaiting to be put to death. And the jailer comes down and says, the king wants to know if you have anything, anything to say by, you know, way of apology or, or you want clemency. And the one of them says, I'd like to teach the king's horse to talk. And the jailer said, okay, I'll pass this message on to the king. And, of course, the king's very fascinated by this. But while right. they're waiting for the king to come back, one friend says to the other, what are you talking about? You can't teach the king's horse to talk. That's not possible. And he goes, we'll see. And the king comes down and, you know, they make the agreement that if this fellow can teach the king's horse to talk within a year, then he'll be released. And off goes the king and this fellow gets to have one year's reprieve while he tries to teach the king's horse to talk. And his friend says again, you can't possibly do this. You're going to be put to death in a year's time by the king. And the fellow says, well, perhaps, but, you know, a lot could happen in a year. I might die. The king might die. Well, the horse might talk. <laughs> so right. the point is you can't predict what's going to happen. What we've got as human beings is time, time to improve things, time to try out new ideas. And at the moment, it seems to be the case that people think we have, that you were talking about fixed and growth mindsets, that we have a fixed amount of resources, that yep. we are fixed on this planet Earth, that it has a particular size, and so therefore it can only support so many people. This is an idea that has been refuted decade after decade since Thomas Malthus, the mathematician, first made the argument, the idea that, well, there's only so much farmland on the Earth, mm. the farmland is not increasing in area, but the number of people is increasing so therefore there must come a time when we're going to run out of farmland right and the curious thing about that is this was made prior to the invention of the harbor process this idea that you can take nitrogen and hydrogen put it together and make this thing called ammonia which can make previously unfertile land fertile Yep. So you can grow far more crops on a fixed area of land yep. than what you could without this process. And this has just continued apace. We continue to increase the productivity of farmland. We can have vertical farmland. It's interesting, yep. you know, that degrowth idea. I was, in, I was engaged in a Twitter exchange with the authors of one of that, that very paper who said that some, something to the effect of vertical farming is a fantasy or vertical farming is just decorative. I think she said decorative. I think, well, why? Why is the vertical farming decorative? Well, I can certainly imagine a situation where we continue to grow our population. We have vertical farming. Yeah. But more than that, I can imagine a situation where the moon can become fertile, where Mars can become fertile. Am I talking about tomorrow or next decade? No, but eventually. And in the meantime, other things will improve other ways of generating efficiencies in the world. It's simply not the case that as the population has increased, that the amount of food available has decreased. It is exactly yep. the opposite, yep. that we can support more people at a higher standard of living, more yep. wealthy, but we are constantly being fed the message that things are about to get worse, don't you know, that the yep. catastrophe is about to come. And this has just happened for decades, I want to say centuries, that people have kind of thought that things are going to get worse. We we had this period during the during the space race where people were sort of, the 50s and the 60s, people were thinking things were going to get better, of course, at the same time. They were also thinking maybe the hydrogen right. bomb was going to go off and wipe everyone right. out. But, you know, at least we had this idea that people could be a space-faring um, community. We could reach out to the stars. And that seems to have been lost at the moment. You know, people talk about there is no planet B. Well, of course there is. We keep finding them all the time. There's yeah, planets yeah. everywhere. All over. We don't it's know exactly how to get there yet, but so what? <laughs> you know, yeah. Soluble problem. And Problems are soluble. As David Deutsch says, they're inevitable. We're always going to encounter them, but you have to have this stance that 
with some effort, with some creativity, we can solve them. And that's all that optimism is about, this idea that any of the bad stuff that's out there at the moment, it can be overcome because it's just a matter of us constructing the knowledge of how to overcome the problem. 100%. Again, to speak to your vertical farming, I think like talking about productive farmland, first off, a lot of people may or may not know this, but two types of water come from your home, gray water and black water sewage. Gray water is typically like kitchen shower water. And the reason why it's pollutant is it's full of soaps, which are nitrogen and phosphate. Your washing machine, laundry, that's soaps, nitrogen and phosphate. A lot of people realize is what's fertilizer, nitrogen and phosphate. And there've been studies done that you can actually use your laundry water to water your garden and it, in some instances, full completely with minimal treatment replaces the need for fertilizer for like a home garden. Now, take this, you talk about vertical farming. How many houses have a side of wall of the house that gets, you know, full 12 hours of light exposure all day, every day? It wouldn't take a genius to set up some sort of vertical farming system. You could put like people want to put solar panels on a house. You have a vertical like there's just so many. And the idea is that it just in here in this simple one hour trying to solve this one problem, we've already generated an idea that possibly just like people want to get solar panel systems. Look at that. There's a vertical farming. We don't need to kill a billion people for fear of running out of food. We don't need to set up Mm -hmm. cricket farms for fear that people aren't going to get protein. We just need to, Mm. like you said, be optimistic, be creative, admit that we may be fallible in our fears and just keep building progress towards new knowledge, good knowledge. I love this interview so much. I hope people listen to this a couple of times. I think there's just so many good gems to take from this. I feel like we'd go for another hour, but I do want to be respectful for your time. Before, is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you at this point? Not that I can think of. I'm concerned that I've been extremely pessimistic about the present, that I do think there has been a number of missteps politically. But we, but again, just to reify the fact that we live in the best of times, mm. not the best possible times. Things could get better, of course, and will indeed get better. And I expect that they will get better because we still are in a dynamic society. But right. what I'm concerned about is the rate at which things could be getting better by taking the right. brakes off certain things at the moment, which are depressing the capacity of businesses and individuals to generate wealth reducing the amount of taxation, reducing the amount of regulation, fostering an environment where wealth can be created and people can make decisions about, for example, the energy mix that they want to use. If you want to use green energy, that's fantastic. Do your bit for the environment. Some yep. people walk down the street picking up the, the litter on the street. Great. Good for them. You know, that that's a virtuous thing to do. And if you want to use solar energy and wind energy, more power to you. But for the people who can't afford the green forms of energy, then they, they shouldn't be forced to take on the green forms of energy. So I think that this is possible. I think it's going to happen. I think there's a generation coming behind us that, mm. that are going to recognise these things. It's not necessarily that the truth will out, but rather that conversations such as this one can perhaps ignite the spark in younger people who are willing to stand up to a prevailing political movement at the moment, which says that People are in some way evil simply for existing, that anything we do when it comes to the use of energy is going to cause destruction of the environment. And this is the wrong perspective to have, that we have to shift. And I think there will be a shift made once people begin to understand the optimistic ideas that will enable more rapid progress. As rapid as it's been in the past, it can be more rapid in the progress. And I genuinely think that it, that it will be. We just have to get over this hurdle at the moment. Yeah. There's this, this prosaic hurdle that it, that has existed just prior to COVID, during COVID and after COVID. I, yeah. I think that we're, we've got pent-up elasticity and the human flourishing is just elasticity waiting is to good. bolt through the gate. Yeah, I love that. That's a good term. <laughs> elasticity. I like to think that I don't think things are getting worse. I just think that more has come to light all of a sudden. And criticism has emerged of that of the errors that we need to eliminate. And my hope is like you say, is that as we have these discussions and we debate these things that we come to better explanations, we bring clarity to it so we can eliminate those errors. And like you said, move forward. And I'm optimistic. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about the multiverse and how we know it's real and so much other stuff, but maybe we'll have to have you come back for another interview. Brett, where are the best places for people to find you if they want to hear more? I think if you just Google TOKCAST, T-O-K-C-A-S-T, or my website, bretthall.org, and all the links are there. Perfect. So that's O-K-C-A-S-T or Brett, B-R-E-T-T, Hall, H-A-L-L.org. 
Bernal, thank you so much for coming. I thoroughly enjoyed this. This was so great. Again, people may want to listen to it more than once. I got pages of notes. Just thank you so much. I know you've got your own audience, your own, your own projects. So thank you for coming and sharing. So hopefully we can help empower others to create some new knowledge themselves.